Welcome to With Faith in Mind. My name is Jesse Koopman, the producer of the podcast, and I'm excited here today to be with our co-hosts, Dan Hummel and John Turrell. And we are going to be wrapping up our season today. Season one was Christian Education at the Crossroads, and we had a lot of fun and learned a lot of stuff. And uh, we are going to dig in today to kind of recap, bring you guys back all up to speed for those of you who maybe didn't catch every single episode along the way, or just want to get a overall view of what we explored and, and did and talk about maybe a little bit of the future of the podcast and, and what's going on at Upper House. So with no further ado, John, Dan, welcome and uh, excited to get to chat with you guys a little bit today. Great to see you, Jesse. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks, good to John. be here with both of you. Um, so I want to start off with just a kind of a fun question. So let's share some of our favorite memories of the experience. It could be podcasting in general. It could be a specific guest. It could be a, a specific topic. It could be hanging out with me. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> whatever it may have been. Uh, but let's start off with some of your favorite moments of, of the first season. Uh, John, let's kick it off. Well, Jesse, as we finish, I have to say that, um, and our listeners um, wouldn't know this uh, by listening, although maybe they do, because they've noticed some trend lines in our own performance. But but for me, one of the real um, joys has been to sit under your teaching. And uh, this is not a natural um, forum for me. Uh, and so Jesse has has really been a great coach to just help us get better at this format. So I have a lot of good memories, some painful memories, <laughs> uh, because just like it, for the athletes out there that have had to watch tape of their performance um, or musicians or whatever it is, uh, Jesse has that same teaching principle that he invites us to scroll back and to reflect on the good and the bad of each episode. So I've really appreciated that about, about your work. Well, um, thanks, John. I think a highlight for me um, would be how complex. I think in, in my mind, part of the joy of this has been to invite a lot of different perspectives uh, to, and to hear the complexity of, of leaders uh, and scholars uh, that are wrestling with these issues real time mm. and trying to make sense of all the change that's coming. And I think that's, that's more of a collective memory, but um, I think it's been helpful for me. It's it's actually made me feel a little less alone uh, and fearful um, as this this industry, I, I, the uh, industry yeah. of, of Christian education, and it is an industry at some level. It's it's really about formation, so it's more than an industry, but it is a it is an institution, a series or or a, a network of institutions that are try, trying to affect change in the world. And there's a lot of complexity. And I think you, as a leader within that segment, you can feel lost at times. And mm. there's something wonderful about recognizing that you're not the only one that feels all the complexity. So mm -hmm. that's probably a highlight for me is to, to sit with a lot of really seasoned people and to hear them talk about some of the key insights they have and how they're wrestling with these complex changes that are coming. Yeah, I've really loved that too. Uh, and thanks for the kind words too, John. There's a yeah. lot to me. Uh, how about you, Dan? Any memories specifically stand out to you that excited you or you look back with a great fondness for? Yeah. Uh, well, first, I want to echo John and say it's been a pleasure working with you, Jesse. And I think uh, beyond the the coaching, um, you know, being a producer for something like this requires a lot of uh, flexibility, adaptability, mm -hmm. um, a lot of rescheduling of <laughs> particular interviews and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that could be, that could go a bunch of different ways. It was always uh, a can-do attitude and a, a, a sort of uh, adapt-on-the-fly yeah. type uh, attitude, which is great. 
Um, I think back, I think of, uh, many listeners weren't able to join us, but I think of our launch party that we had, oh, yeah. uh, which was really fun just to see an, an, you know, an embodied community of people here in Madison who were interested in the topic, interested in what Upper House was doing. It was also in a very unique place. It was in a train car turned into a venue, a hosting venue, which was a really fun change. Just a couple blocks here from, from Upper House. Uh, I think of, of a funny one was uh, Tom Lynn, who uh, is the president of InterVarsity. He was one of our guests and he came actually into Upper House to, to be interviewed and uh, we offered him coffee uh, <laughs> at the at the front end and uh, uh. unfortunately gave him a curdled half and half, which he poured in. And if you know what that looks like, it just sort of all clumps up at the top. And Tom's such a kind person. Oh he, my gosh, he, he, he was, was so gracious. sitting there spooning it out like he was going to save this coffee. <laughs> so uh, we finally encouraged him to get a, a new cup, I believe. Although I don't actually remember. He might have actually drank it. I'm not sure. But... Um, that was just funny. It was, it was, uh, it was a good, good little memory. And then I do think of, there were, a, I, I won't, um, list names. But there were a couple of guests that I had that we had to reschedule a number of times. Mm-hmm. So I just remember once actually getting on the zoom call or getting them in the space, just having this relief, like, ah, oh, this one's actually going to happen. Even if we've rescheduled four times over mm-hmm. the last you know month or something yeah. for this. So it's always good when you can, um, you know, sort of intend to have conversations and you actually get to have those conversations. And, um, I, I really enjoyed, I can't think of a, a sort of conversation that I didn't really come away enriched from, but it was particularly rewarding when it was a, it was a hard catch based on usually, my, you know, a mix of my schedule and, and the guest schedule as well. Yeah. yeah. And Jesse, it reminds me that your story about Tom, which I didn't know, um, cause I wasn't <laughs> a part of that interview reminds me of the launch party and the mixing of the, um, the, the, uh, spices, uh, at the end that emptied oh, out. I wonder, Jesse, I wonder if you could tell that story. Oh gosh. Yeah. So we had this amazing catering from a, a local Thai restaurant here in Madison. Uh, and, uh, at the end of the evening, uh, we kind of dumped all the spice bowls that were meant to season <laughs> our food into the trash. And it created like this unbelievable cacophony of, of odorous spices and everybody that was sticking around to clean up was coughing wildly and sneezing like crazy for like the next half hour. Uh, it was quite something, but it was a lot of fun. And we it, all laughed pretty hard about it when we weren't crying through the, it, <laughs> the pain it, of the it, spices it tru- in the air. It truly emptied the train. It like, really I, did. I, I, I could not, I could not, and I have a pretty high tolerance. I could not take it. Yeah. I had to physically get off the train. It, it was really, <laughs> really something. Oh, man. Oh man, but that was a really fun event. Yeah, I look back fun. on that with a lot of fondness too. Yeah. Uh, favorite memories for me. I mean, I think the the most fulfilling thing I have as a, both a producer and a teacher uh, and consultant is just watching teams grow mm-hmm. and, and get better. Uh, watching the two of you really come into your own and grow and develop as as interviewers and as podcasters has been uh, really my biggest highlight. But also just the quality of guests that you guys inspired your conversation skills, um, uh, both in terms of who you chose to invite, uh, who you chose to um, really bring in to talk about specific issues, and just the, the nature of your circles that it accompanied that. Uh, but yeah, watching you guys get to interact with them, develop a personal style in terms of your interview and, and conversations has been really, really my biggest highlight. Uh, beyond that, um, some of the guests were just a real hoot, uh, mm. and I, I'm really, really thrilled to have gotten to meet some of these people that I never would have outside of having these conversations or being a part of this podcast. 
Yeah, that's, that's some, of those, great. some of those people I now have relationships with. That's great. Yeah, that's that's so good. And I there were so many, uh, so many experienced leaders. I we didn't do this, but it would be an interesting exercise to to add up all the years of of leading oh within Christian education. And I mean, hundreds, hundreds of years, likely, and then some really dynamic younger voices, um, very seasoned. Um, but younger chronologically, right? That mm-hmm. that you just gives you a lot. They, it, it brings a lot of hope that we have so many uh, just wonderful young people stepping into positions of leadership. That I think, um, at least for me, feels really gratifying, and and I feel hopeful that the church is in good hands. Yeah, I remember when Dan interviewed Sarah Solstice, um, the recent graduate uh, from college. I I was just so impressed with her take on life, spirituality, spiritual formation, and education. Um, I thought she was deeply insightful, well-spoken, and uh, really courageous in the way that she presented her own take on things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I loved seeing that. It gave me a lot of hope, too. Uh, likewise, when we talked with Tia and Marcio Sierra, right. they're not the youngest people in the world, but they're uh, my age-ish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say how old that is. but We'll let people guess. We'll let our <laughs> listeners guess. Um but yeah, just the way they talked about the generation they're working with in primary education, yeah. it was just so inspiring to hear about the effectiveness that they're having and the the passion and, and zeal that they bring to that role uh, really excites me about the future. Right. Yeah. Uh, talking about the future, that just makes me think about the past as well and where we've come from. And Dan, as a historian, you have a very unique perspective on almost everything that you tend to bring to every conversation you have. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dan, he's a... Uh, historian through and through, PhD here at UW. Uh, and literally, I can't remember a, a good conversation we've had that didn't involve some sort of historical perspective out of you, uh, whether that's how's the weather today or <laughs> something okay. about Christian formation. Um, so I'm really curious to get a uh, perspective from you as a historian. When you take a look at uh, the entire series, and we had historians on, we had um, uh, Andrew Turpin on, I know we had... Uh, can't remember his name. Talked about we had a number of uh, and of trained historians. Charlie Cotherman. Charlie Cotherman was on. Was on. We yeah, had others like Rick Ostrander who are trained historians. Yeah, Doug Strong was on. Um, um, Carl Johnson. Oh yeah, I forgot. History. Yeah, he's also a historian. As I, I think I made this joke at the front end of the Carl Johnson interview, which is I found a few ways to sneak in a few extra historians. They're not necessarily <laughs> talking about history, but we're getting more and more history PhDs on the mm-hmm. on the series. <laughs> um, as you think about uh, the holistic sense of the podcast and the historical bent, I bet you've had a unique perspective on how things have gone from where we started in America in this to where we are today. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that historical perspective as far as what you've learned through the podcast about our history, as well as some of the things that you've maybe found wanting still that you would have wanted to understand more deeply or maybe want to look into more moving forward? Right. And there's always more questions. Uh, when you do something like this, you dive deep and you realize just um, how narrow the slice of, of of reality that you're actually grappling with. Yeah. I remember when we were first starting this whole conversation, I think we had 10 episodes planned. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we're now on 24 in the wrap up. So. Right. And we definitely cut things, you know, cut, cut off mm-hmm. conversations that we could have had um, just due to this thing growing so much. Uh, yeah. From a historical perspective, I mean, I think one of the things that uh, comes across, at least for me, from my perspective, is just how interesting and how different the histories of the different types of institutions we're talking about. 
are. So we had Andrea on to talk about like the long American history, at least of colleges and universities mm -hmm. and the tradition of moral education that goes back hundreds of years. On the flip side, we had Charlie talk about the Christian study center model, which I mean, he, he dated to basically the 1960s and seventies. And it, it's a, it emerged as a response to particular problems in those decades and then has developed since then into what we know today as the Christian Study Center movement. And so you can tell those two stories almost without reference to each other if you wanted to. But I think one of the, the powerful things we did in the series is try to bring these things together under a shared curiosity about the, the nature and the history and then the future of Christian education. I also really recognized you know, one of the last uh, running, we, we did the interview middle through, but last running was Danny Wasserman at um, Lumen Christi, a mm -hmm. Catholic study center type organization down in, in Chicago. And it just struck me that there's a whole history, I mean, a massive history, possibly bigger than the Protestant, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, version of this history of Catholic education, not just higher education, all types of, you know, secondary education, everything. And, you know, we just basically glanced off that. We mentioned it in a few different um, passing ways. And, and that's not to diminish what we did, but just to recognize just how vast you spend your whole life, you know, sort of pondering Christian education. Um, and one last thing I'll say about just as a historian is, and this is what historians tend to say, so I'm not <laughs> saying anything new here, but just how distinctive a lot of the questions, problems, and then answers are to Christian education within a broadly American context. We talked to, to a mm -hmm. few people who were dealing with uh, educate, Christian education outside of the US, and it was interesting because they have much different experiences. In fact, sometimes it's almost the reverse situation. We talk a lot about decline in Christian education, particularly higher education in the US, whereas in other parts of the globe, Christian education is booming. It's never seen so much growth. And as a historian, that just makes me realize how much context matters, how much particular localities, particular communities develop their institutions and their answers to deep questions like, what does it mean to be educated uh, in response to those immediate contexts? And it, it let me appreciate um, everything from listening to people who were outside of the US and, and trying to understand what was needed there to people like uh, Tiffany Malloy, who is a pastor here in Madison, thinking about formation and education very specifically to her tradition and and the people in Madison that attend her church. So um, as a historian, I just appreciate that. I, I love the diversity. I love the way um, you can enter into what seem to be very general conversations and they get very specific very quickly. And I'll say just, Jesse, the second part of that is you asked about things that were missing or um, I think the one that I just, I, I'm really curious in and it's been driving some of my reading the last uh, few months, actually, is this question of Catholic uh, education or the Catholic intellectual tradition, which is how mm -hmm. Danny talked about what they were tapping into. And I find it fascinating, one, because it's so old and, and there's such a continuity with voices. And we talked about this with Danny going back centuries and centuries um, and is also global. So there are, you know, Catholic education, you might just assume U.S. Catholic education, but that looks different than um, education in other parts of the globe. And so I've, I've been interested more and more in just sort of exploring that tradition and particularly exploring its philosophies of education and every, really ever since talking to Danny. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, John, so we talked about one of Dan's favorite subjects or subsets of study and that's history. I know one of yours is institutions. 
Uh, I would love to get your take on some of the more profound or interesting or just enjoyable things that you learned around the notions of institutions and leadership. I can know leadership and institutions both kind of go hand in hand for you. Um, is there something that you're just both incredibly passionate about? Uh, so what are some of your observations there? Yeah, well, I think Dan made a couple important points. One is that the trend lines uh, in North America look a little different than trend lines in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and and we could think about um, uh, parts of, I mean, I'll just, the world versus North America and maybe, maybe Europe. Um, uh, and so we could single out regions of the globe, but those trend lines would be very different and you'd have to really think about them almost country by country um, to, to really understand them. From an institutional perspective, I think there's a couple of things, maybe two or three things that are really in play here that make this interesting. One is, at least in North America or the United States for the time being, college uh, enrollment has probably reached its peak. So it is a model that's under strain. You think about most industries, um, and most industries think about growing and expanding market share. And... Co colleges and universities in the United States could do that. North America could do that, but they'll have to think creatively about how to do that, right? So a lot of emphasis on first-generation students and expanding the market for those who are considering a college degree. Um, I think there is another uh, mega trend that's in play, and that is lots of people questioning the role of a college degree. Um, mm -hmm. And I think some of that questioning has been healthy. I think. Um, for those who are trying to um, source equipment or buy a car or build a home or buy a home, you see in kind of a clear way the strain on the trades um, and the skilled trades. And so I think we need to get more creative about supporting young people and, and others who are uh, maybe a college degree is not a good option for them, not because they don't have capacity or capability, but because they're really gifted in some other field. Some and they have other interests, and I think we've really diminished the trades, and we've mm -hmm. chipped away at that over time. And I see, you know, a lot of new emphasis on helping students um, begin to move in that direction again, um, with with celebration. You know that it doesn't; it's not a second class ticket. It can be a first class ticket. Um, and so that's really important, I think. But that's a really important trend line that I think is a part of this. And then I, I think the the just the business model for higher education, um, earned income models, tuition. Um, you know where do where do where does the income come from? I mean, this complicates everything. Uh, in what ways can universities and colleges expand um, to draw um, greater revenue sources to to really you know fund the work that they they, they want to do um, so those are some some kind of themes that are that, that stand out over over the time uh, of our podcast from a leadership perspective um, in Christian education I think it's just really important for um, leaders and we heard this in so many cases leaders really asking the fundamental question of what kind of transformation do we want to see I think ultimately a lot of the way we manage change and adapt to change is to, to go back to the deepest questions. And I think for a lot of these institutions, it really starts with what is the mission of our institution. And I think if you're leading in primary and secondary Christian education, you'll 
ask maybe that same question, but you'll respond a little differently. Mm -hmm. You'll think about the involvement of parents and community maybe a little differently than you will if you're asking that question from a higher education perspective. If you're in the church, you'll, you can ask that question, but you, you might respond to that question in different ways. So there's a lot of overlapping concerns that I think um, all of us uh, leading and thinking about Christian education uh, face, but there are, I think, nuanced ways that we would consider that as well. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. And you, you mentioned themes. I want to kind of go there next and just talk about some of the broader themes that we've seen as we've looked at it as a whole. Um, I'm going to kick off with one word here, and that's ecosystem. I can't mm -hmm. remember how many, but I'd say easily more than half of people unsolicitedly mentioned the word ecosystem when they talked about higher education or Christian education abroad or formation. Whenever we talked about these, almost unquestionably, people would talk about it as what they are doing fits into a broader ecosystem. Um, and I'd love to just get your guys' take on how you experienced that and what that meant to you to talk about it from that perspective. Yeah, it, the ecosystem language helped me, for one, make sense of the whole in a way that I hadn't before sort of using that metaphor. So understanding that, at least how I think of the ecosystem, that there's these different institutions that almost assume that there are other institutions doing other work that they're contributing to the larger yeah. educational mission. And yeah. so... You have the church or churches who have a certain type of education they want to advance. They can't do everything. They can't you know, train people in trades or anything like that. So they're assuming that there's a school system, a primary school system, a secondary, a post-secondary school system, and that there's certain types of education happening there. There's certain types of formation happening there. And there's also a parachurch uh, institutional system. We talked to Tom Lynn of University, among others, about that. Christian study centers fit into that as well. And we, I, just to, to make it about uh, study centers for a second, we assume that there's this broader ecosystem that yeah. we fit into as well. And I think for many people that helped them, particularly the leaders, situate their mission within a broader mission of the church or of education. And so it, it in some ways gave clear lanes for different types of people to do different types of education. But it seemed to also give meaning as a whole to understand that individuals will be coming through this ecosystem over their whole lives, starting possibly with primary education and then going up to adult education or, you know, w continuing education at least. And, you know, one little thing that I just read this weekend that fits into this a little is there was a new study out. There's always these studies about uh, church attendance, de-churching. That's a new term that <laughs> there's a new book out called the great de-churching um, that actually made the claim that most um, most people by the age of 18 have decided whether or not they're going to be a, a sort of be part of a religious community or not. And, uh, and this goes against maybe other wisdom that says college is really important to this. And we've actually justified, uh, work we've done here is saying, you know, the 18 to 22 year old period there, everyone's exploring ideas, all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting. I mean, there's debates about this, but really there's a, there's a way where you can think about this in an ecosystem sense, which is there's a, there's a process of formation. There are very key moments in it. And possibly a lot of those key moments are in actually pre-college age. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that makes me value in a way that maybe I, I wouldn't otherwise the roles of primary and secondary and church education and not laying it all at the feet of Christian colleges or ministries at universities to be the thing that will shape 
a young person's life to understand people are coming in by the age of 18 with a lot of um, developed opinions, even possibly decisions being made that are going to be relatively permanent, sociologically speaking. Yeah. Um, and that's all ecosystem thinking. That's thinking that lets you see the whole instead of just the parts. You know, as you were saying that, it brought up together uh, another episode idea for me that we're not going to add in. But <laughs> if I would have thought about this years uh, years ago, uh, it feels like years ago, uh, months ago when we were first pitching ideas, I would have uh, added, but I, I don't think we ever talked about it, was the role of parenting mm-hmm. in Christian yeah. formation right. and how important and vital that is. And we really didn't get a chance to cover that much at all. And I just learned a new term about that. There are Christian schools. These are primary, uh, secondary schools that... Uh, and an association called the Covenant Christian School um, Guild, and it's it's interesting. It's it's where one at least one of the parents um, needs to be a professing person of faith, so that they're actively involved in the formation mm. component outside of the school. So you know, a, again, a, a commitment to whole life discipleship in all arenas of life and schools trying to find ways to extend and partner with family units so that what they're doing in the classroom is reinforced at home. So lots of, and I don't know how long that's been around. Maybe it's something that's been around a long time, but it's a new term for me. And um, again, a creative way to, to, to reinforce, I think, some of the transformation that these institutions are trying to, trying to achieve. Yeah, that's awesome. I love what well, so talking about this ecosystem concept. One of the things that I loved hearing about from so many people is that so many different elements of the ecosystem have value. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not always about a right or a wrong choice. It's about alignment of value. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are so many ways to do Christian formation or education well, and mm-hmm. not just good, but like really excellently. Mm-hmm. And there's no right model for any one person um, so it's it's all about exploring the ecosystem, knowing what's available to you. I'd like to add one more thing about what Dan said. Uh, Dan's done a really nice job of helping us think about the larger Christian formation ecosystem that includes schools, colleges, churches, the whole universe of what we might consider in that in that world. I also think we can think about the ecosystem as an organization. And it's really important, I think, for, and we heard this over and over again, and I think we're also seeing this breakdown, but to, to, to care for the health of the organizational ecosystem mm-hmm. so that we're honoring all the components and how the components contribute. Um, I think of this, this Greek word that shows up lots and lots of times in the New Testament, oikos, household. Uh, it's the root word of ecumenism, um, a, a shared kind of unity in the faith, ecology, we're talking about ecosystem, this idea that God's world is interrelated, the natural world, an economy where there's really healthy um, sharing of resources. Yeah. And so oikos is a really key word. And I think when we think about Christian education, we need to attend to the health of the organizational ecosystem. And we see this breakdown. I'll use the example of higher ed. Uh, there's a lot of um, fraying of the liberal arts, the humanities. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, departments are viewed as revenue centers. And some of that from a budgetary perspective makes sense. I think we have to 
prove our case in the world that there is a viable market for the thing that we're offering. But yeah, naturally. But but it's not a it's not a healthy ecosystem view. Just because there's not like off the charts demand for a particular major within the humanities doesn't mean we should stop offering it. And and so I think this idea of attending to the well being of our organizations, there will be some it's it's you know it, it it likens back to the teaching around the body, the body of Christ, right? That we all have value. Some have more visible roles, some have less visible mm-hmm. roles, roles. But if there is a part of the body that's not functioning well, you know it and you have to attend to it, right? And I think the same applies uh, in this organizational ecosystem. And we heard this from leaders. Yeah, I was going to say, I can remember at least three people that specifically talked about the product of Christian formation education is not profit or continuation, it's formation. Right. And we need to look at this ecosystem as serving that goal yes. of being formative and educating and producing people of good integrity, life, and knowledge, not making a profit or growth or all these other things that we talk about with shareholders and boards and all these things. But it's it's a hard objective to hold on to because it's not concrete. There's no numbers that we can build around it. It's qualitative more than quantitative. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you have to have a functioning bottom line. Yeah. You know, the, the profit or, you know, being positive net, net positive at the end of an academic year or fiscal year is really important. It's like oxygenated blood in your body. This is not my metaphor, but most people you know, profit is like that mm-hmm. or a positive bottom line. You don't get up every day thinking about your blood, but you need your blood to survive, yeah. right? And so there need to be healthy models that create long-term sustainability, but that honor the whole integrity of the institution yeah, and can train people across all of these categories. And I think that applies for flagship, non-religious institutions, public institutions, but it also applies to Christian colleges, um, and even primary and secondary schools, they're under strain and have to make these tough budget decisions as well. So I wanted to, I wanted to raise that because I think there is this meta and, um, whether a meso and a meta dimension to this idea of ecosystem. Yeah. And the meta, I just was thinking of the conversation with Shirley Hoogstra, the president of the uh, construction of Christian colleges and universities, who's thinking about this thing on a really meta level because she's mm-hmm. right. The hundreds of um, colleges and universities are members in her organization. And this is precisely the tension I think that she's trying to, among many other things, trying to deal with, which is there's a demand question and then there's a mission question and they don't always overlap entirely. So how do you, how do you not give in one way or the other? How do you not sort of put your head in the sand and say, well, this is what we're going to do no matter what the demand right. is and and then the bottom line falls out or how, or the opposite would be chasing whatever the demand yeah. is without any attention attention to your mission and she she maybe this is one of the ones you were thinking of Jesse who had formation at the front of how she was talking about Christian education mm-hmm. but hearing her talk about the not just the economic uh demands on higher education but even the legal um challenges yeah. in, in some parts of the country uh, that seemed to me to be the tension that she, you know, why she's in the position she is, but the one that she probably wakes up with every morning is is how to how to balance those things. Yeah, and I think leaders have to have uh, a compelling 
argument that holds both of those in value. I mean, most of the people, the students who attend, the parents uh, who are helping students make decisions about um, enrolling are not thinking about the bottom line. Like, I really want to send my kid to the most efficient um, (laughs) and economically viable. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might be, they're looking at tuition and all that kind of stuff, but they're thinking about transformation. They're thinking about training and, and, um, and formation really at the, at the core and faculty and other stakeholders, other people that are, that make a university or, or a church or a high school or middle school go are thinking about something other than the bottom line most. And, and yet that bottom line is really important. And there's a lot of strain on that bottom line right now. So one of the things we've heard a lot of people talking about is the demographic cliff. And it's been a reoccurring theme we've heard over and over again. And I wanted to explore it from uh, the question point to both of you of what do you see as the, the crux of that problem? Mm. And then what were some of the great ways you heard that people are doing their best to address it? So one of the other objectives we had we got the first objective yet. Uh, one of the objectives we had in uh, getting into this is addressing some of the concerns that are the crossroads of Christian education mm-hmm. and providing some solutions to it. So what are some of the unique or exciting or interesting ways that you guys heard people talking about how they're addressing the demographic cliff? Well, one thing that uh, I knew and go I knew going in, but it was reaffirmed was, the demographic cliff is not just a Christian higher education Correct. issue. It's across all of U.S. higher education. This sense that in, I think it's 2025, 20, 2026, 20, mm. basically because of the birth rates of, of college age, you know, as people age into college age, the number of people attending college is never going to get bigger. It's actually going to get smaller over the next decades. And that's really problematic in an industry that has basically built itself to grow and grow. And mm-hmm having to readjust to a shrinking market. We're here in Wisconsin. Uh, this is an ongoing conversation with the public university system. UW-Madison is the flagship. They're going to be just fine, but there are over a dozen other schools in Wisconsin that are really thinking about this demographic cliff a day in and day out. So that's one thing is that this isn't a uniquely Christian problem, but there are interesting ways. I think the, the, the most interesting conversation I had on that front was with Shirley Hoogstra, Who's thinking about this at a very sort of top level, meta level for the entire industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got into a few specific examples, but really thinking about how are Christian colleges trying to attract different types of students than they had traditionally, uh, including students outside for particular colleges outside of the religious tradition that they were founded as, which is a, can be a very dramatic development, which is if you were always meant to serve, you know, Methodist students from the Midwest, and then suddenly you're trying to attract first generation immigrant students from across the entire country. That's a big, that's a big shift. And, uh, but she, she described a couple colleges and universities that are at least trying to do that mm-hmm. as a way to reimagine it. And I thought that was an interesting way to, bo- to live missionally for most of these institutions, mm-hmm. which do have a mission of trying to reach more and more people, trying to, while also trying to address a, a very real sort of economic or demographic uh, reality. Um, so that was, those were those were interesting ones. There were other you know ways that people have tried to adapt, including you know building nursing programs or building business schools, whatever is the sort of most popular yeah. um, majors. Many of these schools, uh, Christian schools, were not were sort of founded as liberal arts colleges or even Bible institutes with very specific missions. And over the last you know few generations, have had to really reimagine themselves in the modern 
university setting. So that's been another way some colleges and universities have tried to address it is by moving toward popular majors and popular fields. And I think that's been more of a controversial move in the sense that there've been a lot of critiques of that as um, not fulfilling the original mission of those institutions. And I think that's a fair critique, but I also, part of me, and this is something we also noticed, I think is a recurring theme is uh, things have to evolve. Mm. Um, We can't stay stagnant in old models that are no longer working. So, and I think part of the thing for that personally is that everybody in every role in the greater ecosphere of, of humanity, we all have roles to fill in jobs and all these capacities. We all need Christian formation. So if we're a nursing student and we want to have our faith life edified at the same time as getting our nursing degree, I think that's a beautiful option for the there. But the, yeah, their mission may have to change a little bit along the way. And I think that's a, a real struggle and it's something that people are going to deal with. Um, my favorite response to this, and not, not the best response, but my favorite one, uh, was Garwood Anderson's. Um, he talked about uh, Nishota House, uh, his the institution that he he works with. Um, uh, he talked about uh, McDonald's versus the brew pub uh, model <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how Nashota House is dedicated to staying small and providing a truly unique experience that's and completely involved in community and doing communal life together in ministry and everything that goes on in the university they try to do together in a community way. Um, and in that they provide this special, unique experience that's premium as opposed to cookie cutter and expected and and all this, something so that a unique, different experience. So it's it's more in demand. Um, so I think then there's I think it's cool that there's again we talk about there's more than one way to skin a cat in this ecosystem. So I think it's cool that we see multiple institutions taking different pathways to meeting the needs of the day. Yeah, and I think one of the pressures around this demographic cliff, and a lot of this was really helpful for me as well. It really the demographic cliff started. You have to go upstream, and it started around the Great Recession. So the birth rates declined mm-hmm. in around 2008 significantly because of all of the economic turmoil. And so those, those babies um, are now starting, you know, in the mid-2020s, they're going to start matriculating into college. And that birth rate has stayed low. So the number of students is, is just going to be smaller. Um, same time, um, there's more competition internationally for mm. um, higher ed. Other countries are stepping forward with higher ed options, both both Christian and otherwise. And so it used to be that America, uh, North America was in a unique position. That is not the case. Um, It's it's still a competitive advantage, something that we do offer and we have real strength there, but there are other countries that have really stepped in and are filling that gap in some ways. So I think that's interesting how how universities are going to, colleges are going to respond uh, on that front. Um, and then I think the other thing is these Christian colleges are located within a particular context, a city, a state, a region of the country. And mm-hmm. Michael Lindsay and others spoke to this. Um, and they're going to have to make decisions about how they adapt from a theological perspective or not adapt? Um, do they mm-hmm. broaden their student body? Do they broaden or loosen requirements for faculty? Um, there are some loss, real losses with that. Um, if you're trying to, to stay true to your sort of deep Christian moorings, um, but there are gains too, because you begin to attract a broader student base, maybe faculty base. So. 
I think there are going to probably be new designations for Christian colleges. And I think this is already happening that are, um, you know, holding to some Christian moorings and want to be serious about that, but are opening up in some ways. And there will be others that will, that will be, um, have a little tighter understanding of, of how, of what that should look like. And, um, I think there's room for all of that. Um, I think it's going to be really important that colleges and universities get really clear about that, particularly in the Christian college world, so that students and parents have a real clear sense of what what it is that they're going to get. But a lot of this is really changing radically, yeah. and I think surely um, I didn't I wasn't at point on that interview, but I know the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities is really trying to wrestle with this. Um, because a lot of their member institutions are feeling this in, in, in very challenging ways. I mean, if you're a, a Christian college located in central Indiana, it's going to be different than what you experience culturally than in Boston, Massachusetts, or in Seattle, Washington. So um, all of these factors come together and contribute to how these institutions are responding. I love that. So we've talked about two of the big themes that we've seen reoccurring, and we've talked a little bit about some of the objectives that we set out for. Um, I want to talk about one of the other objectives we had, and that's providing uh, resources for people and, and answers to questions. We've done a good job of discussing some of those and exploring the ecosystem through the episodes, and I don't want to rehash all of that. I'd like to ask you guys, what are some of the questions that still remain for you? So as we've gone through this, we talked about it earlier, we didn't get in every single episode we wanted to do, but what are some of the questions that as much, much as we have covered and as much as uh, we've learned through all this, what are some questions that really remain for you? Yeah, I, ha I have a lot of questions that relate, which relate to the future, which I, I admit no one can really say with certainty what, what it'll be, but uh, there were a lot of questions that emerged as we were talking to the current leaders about their strategies, their thoughts, and their anticipating of what's coming next. That just made me really curious. And I mean, only time will tell with some of this stuff, but I was interested in, in some of the, I guess called the fate of, but the, the future of some of these organizational models or types mm -hmm. and the traditional, or it's not that traditional, but the established four-year Christian college. I do wonder what the what the future of that model will be. I don't know if any new ones will be founded or um, how the ones that exist will survive. I definitely think they'll be different. Uh, we get, get a clear sense um, that the ec economics that built those are are gonna be different going forward. Um, I, I had a lot of questions about, and th this is one we didn't get to explore as much, was we, we talked about a few parachurch type ministries or mm -hmm. para-university, intervarsity, um, study centers, but I think there's a lot more out there that we just yeah. didn't, you know, didn't get to, um, or even different types of different models of doing those very things of having a building next to a, a big university or being a campus ministry. I think there's a lot of interesting, historically speaking, ways that Christians have gone about that type of work that we were just not able to capture in, in what we were doing. And finally, I'm, I'm interested in a, in more of a meta way on maybe you could call it the curriculum of Christian education, but um, I didn't get a sense, and part of it was because of this ecosystem approach that that I really enjoyed. I didn't get a sense of like, what's at the core of Christian education? Like if you were to just take all of this together, the church, the parachurch, the secondary, the higher education, yeah. what's at the core of that? And I don't even know who could answer that. I mean, that, you'd have to have a, a very special person to do that. 
Um, but we, we, we are grouping it all under Christian education. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I could articulate, I could articulate some things, you know, it's, it's, it has, it's rooted in the Christian tradition. There's something about formation. Um, but I, maybe, and maybe that's an unanswerable question, but something I'd love to explore more is just sort of what's at the core of what it means to be a Christian educator or to be a Christian student. And I think we got a lot of interesting answers, but, um, I, you know, a final answer is yet to be determined on that, I yes. guess. Yeah, it'd be an interesting experiment to to take the core curriculum from all the Christian colleges and universities, um, seminaries, what are, what are their core courses for their degrees, what are Christian high schools and, you know, middle school, primary schools doing, and see what, you know, where the overlap, how, how much of the Venn diagram overlaps. Right, right. I, I'm assuming there is a, a lot of overlap. Right. And yeah. that might give you a good start. Right. And we could probably guess what some of those topics would be. Um, but the approach on how you teach that and how right. you how you deliver is really unique. We didn't even get into technology related issues. Right. I mean, those are huge uh, at the meta level question, meta level question um, that has really changed. Um, and I think you know, COVID had a big, big, yeah. big hand in that as well. I think for me, um, and it really coincides with what Dan shared. What are What's the nature of partnerships and unions going forward? Mm. I think Dan was speaking to this, but is there, because you have this, this static market or this, this shrinking pool of potential students, unless we find creative ways to open up pathways, new pathways for non-traditional students and others from different parts of the world. Um, and I'm speaking now from a North American, mostly U.S. perspective. What are ways that institutions can partner together? Um, to deliver a real value-added Christian mm -hmm. education experience, and not have and not have to do it in a way that requires as much um, physical and economic capital. Yeah, I love that. Um, so we're learning about some new models. One of the interviews we could have had that we didn't, but it's come up in our work here at Upper House is a really a really unique partnership between Manhattan Christian College and Kansas State, where Manhattan Christian College has a long tradition in Manhattan, Kansas, um, and K-State has kind of grown up all around them and surrounded them. And students um, can get degrees from both institutions. Um, a lot of students will start at Manhattan Christian College and then transfer to K-State. It's a very open relationship, you know, where there's a lot of mutual partnership across the board. And so that's an interesting model. I wasn't aware of that. And there are other models out there as well. Yeah. That's one that, that has come to my mind or my knowledge um, in the last few weeks. So just how are, are, how are institutions going to partner going forward? And will there be creative um, aggregations that we can't even see today that, um, and guilds that form that five, 10 years from now are really vibrant and offering something that's really in many ways new and different. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really cool. And it does excite me that people are pursuing constantly new avenues of, of how to do this right and do it better and how to grow and change. Um, I want to take now about five, 10 minutes just to talk about us. Um, I want to talk about Upper House and maybe study centers at large as well. Um, and talk about what our role is, since this is who we are. Uh, Upper House is a Christian study center located in Madison, Wisconsin on the UW campus. And 
uh, we are passionate about our role in the ecosystem. I want to allow us a moment um, to to share about what we're doing here, what we're passionate about, and why we exist. So, uh, John, I mean, you are our executive director. I'll, I'll get, let you lead off with this, but um, tell us about what you learned about our role, maybe, in the broader ecosystem. Uh, and tell us a little bit about what you're excited about as far as how we fit into the broader structure of Christian formation education. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I think we I think this has cl- been a clarifying experience for us. I think there were a number of things that have happened over the last six months that have helped us clarify our own sense of mission. But certainly, this podcast um, forced us to get in and have conversations and mm-hmm. think about the broader system wide change that's coming and has come and will come. So it never uh, stops. Yeah, it never stops. So I think, you know, our role is to just push boundaries in a lot of ways. I mean, that's that we are nimble in a way that some institutions aren't. We have a shorter history. We we do have physical property, but not in the way that most traditional Christian colleges have. So um, we we can make turns a little bit more easily. Um, we've thought a lot about our distribution channels. So uh, that that's probably a new step for us. We've we've done a lot of careful thinking over our nine, eight, eight or nine years of what are our pathways to invite people into this work, who are our key audiences in a university community. And we've we've really worked hard on that. But I think the future of our project is really around channels in some ways. And this is partially coming out of COVID. Um, and just innovation, I think that's that's that we've had a chance of leading, but also re- responding to in the larger um, ecosystem. So we're thinking about this Lumen Center as a way to to initiate new forms of scholarship and gathering scholars in ways that really do contribute to the life of the church. And um, scholars in the Christian colleges and universities have been doing this for a long time, but there are lots of amazing colleagues that are positioned in non-religious institutions. And Mm -hmm. so part of the role of the Lumen Center is to, to... to encourage those scholars to ask some of the questions that other scholars that are in theologically based institutions maybe get to ask more naturally. Yeah. And then bridging those those communities in ways that don't always naturally happen. So the Lumen Center is all about a lot more than that, but that's something that that we're thinking about. Upper House Academy is a way for us to lean into continuing education, adult education. And we're really pursuing this question of what would it like for, what would it be like for Christian study centers like Upper House and other partner institutions to come alongside a public non-religious institution, be a private institution or public, and, and offer courses that are meaningful within the curriculum of the larger university curriculum mm-hmm. where students could could earn academic credit. Um, so could you offer Christian, uh, hist- Christian history or courses on the Pauline epistles or uh, a, a Christian philosophy or whatever it is that I think could be really important, um, make important contributions to the larger academic um, universe within a particular college or university? Could you offer that and, and, and offer it for credit in a way that really does add value to the larger university? So those are two of the five channels that we're thinking about here. There are others, but those are two newer channels that I think yeah, open up that. lots of possibilities for us. I know I would have loved to take in a Christian thought or Christian philosophy course in college. And Dan, I, I 
wouldn't be surprised if you had a thought or two on a Christian history class. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would be really cool to take those as part of your institutional um, scholastic work mm-hmm. without necessarily being able to like, get it in your program or at your institution. I think it's a really cool idea. And I know, Dan, this is kind of your baby in some ways too. Are there anything you want to add to what John said about the Lumen Center? Yeah. So the Lumen Center is this new initiative that we'll be launching next year. And um, it it comes out of a lot of different conversations and planning for for really years now. But I think this series of conversations on the podcast really helped sharpen um, some of the sense of why it's needed and also how it, um, and, and also to not get you know, too, too proud of ourselves on, on coming up and people are coming up with yeah. very innovative things all the time. We're, we're, we're doing our own work, but we're not special in, the, in that way. But, um, one of the, one of the ways you can talk about research, uh, which is really what the Lumen Center is going to be about. It's going to be about producing ideas, getting ideas out there, ideas that integrate a Christian perspective or Christian, uh, themes with the most, uh, sort of mainstream academic conversations happening at a place like, like UW. There's a couple different ways to talk about what that means, uh, in terms of a develop, a development of a new type of, uh, organization to do the scholarship in one is from the Christian study center perspective, which is that Christian study centers have a certain history. Some of that history actually is rooted in places like Regent college in Vancouver, which is a college. It, it has faculty that produce books and other things. Most Christian study centers don't do that right now, uh, just because of the vagaries of, of the history. And most campus ministries, uh, if we're talking about the broad sort of Protestant world, most campus ministries, that's not their focus. Mm-hmm. So there's a, sto- there's a story to tell about what we're doing that is trying to meet or, or trying to not meet, but ex- exceed or chart new territory within what it means to be a Christian study center, what it means to be a campus ministry. There's another way you could tell the story, which is that um, for all of the innovation and good work that we've been talking about, the Christian higher education world is shrinking or it's it's collapsing. Even within the time that we started this series to now, there have been a number of very high profile closures of Christian colleges mm-hmm. uh, around the country. And, and there's this demographic cliff that's, you know, coming. And, and so there's a, there's a bigger question. Most of the Christian scholarship, scholarship produced by Christians comes out of that world. Most, most people who do that teach at Christian universities or at seminaries. And as those are shrinking, there's a bigger question of where's that, where's the support, the institutional support going to come from for the next generation of Christian scholarship. And that's where the Lumen Center is going to be, you know, one small answer, but but hopefully a positive contribution to trying to answer that in a much different context than 20, 30, 40 years ago. Dan, I wonder, I, it, I've heard you talk on this a number of times, and I maybe it would be helpful for our listeners for you to talk about how a whole generation of historians has been influenced by a couple of Christian historians. Right. Could, it, do you feel comfortable sharing that Oh, of course, yeah. That as an and actually, I mean, we interviewed Andrea Turpin, who is a historian at Baylor, who was a student of George Marsden, who uh, was a professor of history, a well-known author of of history, of historical books on American religious history, who basically taught from the 1970s to the 2010s. Marsden was part of a whole, well, not a whole, a, a cluster of historians uh, that were all confessing Christians and also doing the some of the most innovative work in their field at the same time. And they opened up 
uh, real institutional pathways for Christian grad students to then enter the field of American religious history, where today there's a ton of, it's not even remarkable to be a Christian in that field. And that was different before uh, people like uh, Marsden and another one is Mark Knoll uh, came on the scene, but also opened up the imagination for people like me, who was a grad student in the you know late uh, 2000s, uh, wondering what I would do with my Christian faith as I was sort of investigating different parts of history. And I remember as a grad student coming across people like George Marsden and their books and, and realizing, oh, in the acknowledgments or in the foreword, this author is saying they're a Christian and they actually come to these questions because they're in part driven by their faith commitments and really opening up my imagination, like, oh, people can do this. Like, this isn't something that would be um, necessarily shunned in my field. And, and those two scholars, Mark Knoll and George Marsden, and a bunch of others, um, uh, really changed the field of American religious history. Now, some of it's interesting because we're now sort of a generation later, and some of even their students are critiquing them um, on sort of historical grounds for the way they did that history. But I think that's all part of the, you know, the, just the academic process. But it's, it's sort of, uh, it's hard to ignore the fact that just a few people who were Christian in a certain field really did open up the field in very interesting ways for a lot more Christians to enter the field. So we're not going to try to engineer that necessarily at the Lumen Center. I don't think you can even engineer stuff like that, that, that there's so much that goes into uh, changes in a, an academic subfield. But there's certainly an argument to be made that, that we want to make that getting more uh, Christians involved in the practice of scholarship getting more Christians engaged with the very particular questions of a certain discipline can only enhance the opportunities for people today and then people down the line a generation from now to really see that they have a place in these fields and that um, Christians are welcome at the table just like uh, anyone else should mm -hmm. be. Well, I love it. And I'm very excited to see what comes of this. I think it'll be a really, really exciting time for Upper House, for the Lumen Center, and hopefully for the broader Christian scholarship uh, community. Yeah. So uh, with that, I'm going to call it a wrap on season one of With Faith in Mind. Uh, and we're going to end up here just talking about what's coming next. Uh, number one, before we get to anything with a potential season two or anything like that, uh, I want to make sure everybody knows that we have another podcast. Um, in fact, we just did an episode on our other podcast, which is called Upwards, uh, that easily could have fit into this. Um, we interviewed John Dahl, who's been a, a ministry leader uh, here at UW through University for a long time. Uh, like and like 300 years or something. <laughs> maybe a little longer. Maybe. Uh, no, not quite. But uh, uh, John is a remarkable individual, and he's been very active in our community as well as the UW campus for um, many, many years. And he gave us a great interview about what it's like to function as a ministry leader on a campus ministry, primarily working with grad students, but all over campus. And uh please, please check it out. If you've enjoyed With Faith in Mind, I guarantee you're going to love that episode. Yeah, um, yeah. and I, John, we kid him uh, because he is, um, he's someone, well, last year I committed to get into every building on campus and it took me, I don't know, six or nine months. And some buildings I literally just walked in and then just immediately turned around and walked <laughs> out. Um, but I got into every building on a place, on a campus like this, it's, it's a big chore. Uh, but it was great to actually physically put my eyes on. Well, John has been here so long. He's been in every lab. He's been in every broom closet and he's been in every classroom of every building. So we like to kid him about that, but he has an amazing legacy here and really knows this place in inside and out. Indeed. And uh, so while you're checking that out and you are 
missing us because we are not doing a season two immediately here, uh, please do write us. We, we would love to hear from our audience. For those of you who have enjoyed it, give us your feedback. From those of us who didn't enjoy it or thought there was something missing, we want to hear that feedback too. Uh, for those of you who really want to hear a season two and have ideas for what we should be doing, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. Uh, we do read those emails. We might not respond to every single one that we get, but we do read every single one we get. And we are eager to hear your feedback and and uh, know that you've been enjoying or have criticisms that we can learn from. So thank you all so much for being a part of the process and of our learning, as well as hopefully the engagement our interviewees and, and guests have had. Uh, it has been a truly wonderful experience from the bottom of all three of our hearts. Uh, thanks for joining us for the series. And we hope to hear you on Upwards or hear from you on Upwards and uh, hopefully season two at some point. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org and our other podcast, Upwards, where we dig deeper into the topics our in-house guests are passionate about. With Faith in Mind is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin, hosted by Dan Hummel and John Terrell. Our executive producer and editor is Jesse Koopman. Please follow us on social media with the handle at Upper House UW.